great to see uh, such a crowd today for, for our talk. So thank you all for coming. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, as always, thank you, our members. Uh, we could not do this without you. So your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the generosity of one of our former trustees, Ann Worrell, uh, who endowed this lecture series uh, in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. So now take a few minutes, if you would, to check your cell phones and your pagers if you have them. Uh, just make sure nothing is beeping. Uh, and while you do that, I'm going to let you know about a few programs that we've got coming up. It's actually, um, uh, fall is just an extremely busy time for us programmatically. Uh, so there's a lot uh, to think about. And I hope you'll have a chance to come to some of these events. Um, so next week on September 29th at 6 p.m., we'll be doing something new here. Um, uh, hopefully many of you are familiar with the Memory Wars uh, uh, podcast. We're actually going to be hosting that here in, uh, in this room uh, live and recording that. Uh, we'll have uh, Fulbright Young Journalist Award winner Mary or Mallory No Payne and Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Michael Paul Williams for a special live recording of the Radio IQ uh, podcast. And following that discussion, uh, our own Joseph Rogers, uh, our manager of community engagement, will uh, be with uh, uh, Dr. Chris Graham, who uh, helped us with our uh, Lost Cause Myths, Monuments and Murals exhibit. Uh, and they will be doing tours uh, in a series of round robin sessions uh, after that discussion. Uh, on October 6th at 6 p.m., uh, we'll be partnering with the John Marshall Center uh, for a continuation of their scholar series. Uh, and we will have Supreme Court of Virginia Senior Justice William Mims here uh, and a surprise special guest. I don't even know who it is. Uh, so it will be a surprise. Uh, for a conversation about John Marshall's judicial legacy. Uh, and that will be done uh, in conversation with uh, law professor Kevin Walsh from Catholic University, who will be moderating Q&A after that. And then on October 13th, you get a twofer. Uh, at noon, uh, Philip Levy will be here talking about his book, Permanent Resident, Excavations and Explorations of George Washington's Life. And then at 6 p.m., Robert Pierce Forbes will be here to talk about his book, The United States of Virginia, Jefferson's Invention of America Through a Virginian Lens. So uh, you get uh, Jefferson and Washington in one day. What a deal. Um, so before I bring James on, uh, just one more special announcement. Um, following today's lecture, Bugle Call Coffee Company uh, will be in the cafe right outside. And you'll have an opportunity to sample the bourbon barrel aged coffee in the first of what will be an ongoing series featuring producers from around the Commonwealth. So stop in, learn about the aging and roasting process, try their coffee, and purchase one of our handcrafted bourbon barrel coffee sodas. So please drink responsibly. Uh, we're very pleased to have James Scott with us today. 
uh, to talk about his book, Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo, and The Road to the Atomic Bomb. Seven minutes after midnight on March 9th, 1945, nearly 300 American B-29s thundered into the skies over Tokyo. Their payloads of incendiaries ignited a firestorm that liquefied asphalt and vaporized thousands. 16 square miles of the city were flattened and more than 100,000 people were killed. Black Snow is the story of this devastating raid, which represented a significant moral shift for America marking the first time commanders deliberately targeted civilians, which helped pave the way for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki five months later. A former Neiman Fellow at Harvard, James Scott is the author of Rampage, MacArthur, Yamashita, and the Battle for Manila, which was chosen as a finalist for the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History. His other works include Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle, and the raid that avenged Pearl Harbor, The War Below, the story of three submarines that battled Japan, and the attack on the Liberty, the untold story of Israel's deadly 1967 assault on a U.S. spy ship. Please give a warm welcome for James Scott. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? I don't know about you guys, but that, you know, bourbon barrel aged coffee sounds really good right about now. So uh, <laughs> as we head into lunch, so um, Adam, thank you so much for the uh, warm introduction. And thanks as well to my good friend, Graham Dozier, who helped arrange today and who's uh, been so great to me over the years, inviting me back over and over again, even though I continue to come and tell these really tragic stories of World War II history. Um, and it's great also to see so many folks out here today. I know coming off the pandemic, you know, uh, where we've been living a life on Zoom, that it's uh, it's it's so nice to get together in public again for these types of events. And, um, you know, and for me personally, just to be able to put socks back on again and, and uh, get rid of my flip-flops and T-shirts. So um, I do want to acknowledge as we begin today that we do have the family members of some of the folks who flew on these missions with us today. So if you have a Family member, uh, parent, uncle, um, who may have flown on that, I ask you please raise your hand so that folks might be able to see you here. So we've got quite a good bit, so yeah. Thank you all so much for coming out because this is a very important story that echoes even today through so many lives. Now at sunset on the night of March 9th, 1945, more than 300 American bombers lifted off from runways in the Mariana Islands bound for Tokyo. Plans called for these bombers to fly barely a mile above the ground into one of the most heavily defended cities in the world. No fighters would accompany them. Ground crews, in fact, had gone so far as to strip the planes of their guns. To most, this was a suicide mission. But the operation's architect believed otherwise, and he was right. The payloads of incendiaries those bombers dropped shortly past midnight ignited one of the worst firestorms the world has ever seen. An inferno hot enough to liquefy asphalt and vaporize thousands. That March mission not only devastated Tokyo, but represented a significant moral turning point for the United States. 
which up until that moment had resisted the intentional killing of civilians. That operation sparked a 159-day air campaign virtually unrivaled in its destruction, as city after city soon fell, culminating in the atomic attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended the war. The campaign's success, likewise, prevented a bloody American invasion, which would have cost hundreds of thousands of American lives. All of this combines to make the March 9th strike on Tokyo one of the most consequential decisions of World War II and also one of the most fascinating stories. Now to begin, I'd like to rewind to the fall of 1944 and introduce you to Brigadier General Haywood Hansel, the 41-year-old leader of the 21st Bomber Command, a job in which he was America's top prosecutor in the air war against the Empire of Japan. Now, Hansel had long ago earned a most unfortunate nickname, Possum. And he would swear it was a compliment derived from his agile and crafty intellect. But his wife later slipped up and let it be known that the dreadful name's origin had more to do with his physical resemblance to North America's only marsupial. <laughs> you tell me, you see any resemblance? Now, Hansel had spent his life building up to this job. He boasted relatives who'd fought in every major war dating back to the American Revolution. His own father, a devout Georgia Southerner, had served as a surgeon in the army with tours in the Philippines and in China. Hansel's first words as a baby, in fact, were in Mandarin. The general's youthful appearance camouflaged a drive that made him both a daring fighter pilot early in his career and a gifted intellectual and thinker who helped design the Air Force's air war against Germany. At his core, however, Hansel was a Southern gentleman whose love of writing poetry had made him the Air Force's unofficial poet laureate. The genteel general who recited Shakespeare and Gilbert and Sullivan operas approached combat in a similar manner. He despised the firebombing of cities that defined the British air war in Europe while advocating that America instead execute high-altitude daylight precision raids designed to knock out an enemy's industry while minimizing civilian deaths. But Hansel, as he soon discovered, had taken on a massive challenge in the Pacific. The fight to retake Saipan, Tinian, and Guam in the summer of 1944 had proven incredibly destructive, costing America 25,000 dead and wounded. But this prized Pacific real estate had for the first time placed Tokyo in range of American bombers, a fact reflected in the enemy's ferocious fight, including the largest suicide charge of the war, which led to 4,300 Japanese deaths in a matter of hours. Six days after that invasion of Saipan on June 15th, the first aviation engineers waded ashore, tasked with turning these islands into Hansel's air base. The job had proven Herculean. Not only had the battle reduced Saipan's towns and villages to little more than rubble, but the island's few roads could handle only donkey carts. Engineers armed with dynamite, jackhammers, and bulldozers began blasting coral quarries and cutting roads through sugarcane fields. Others, meanwhile, had set out to erect the tents and Quonset huts that would serve as the operation buildings, mess halls, and officers' quarters. All of this, of course, 
was done as rogue Japanese snipers continued to target laborers, trucks, and even planes in an effort to disrupt progress. But Hansel's challenges went beyond base logistics and Japanese snipers. The first few missions to bomb Tokyo in late November 1944 had revealed that impenetrable clouds often blanketed the island nation, limiting visibility some months to as little as just three days. In addition, crews battled hellacious jet streams in the heavens over the empire that raged at speeds of up to 230 miles per hour in wrecked bombing accuracy. But Hansel wasn't the only one sweating out these early missions. Halfway around the world in Washington, Army Air Force's Commander General Hap Arnold anxiously monitored the results of each strike. Now, Arnold was an air power pioneer who'd learned to fly from none other than Orville and Wilbur Wright uh, in an Ohio cow pasture. The only reason that early aviators wore those trademark goggles like you see on Arnold's forehead here was because a bug hit him in the eye one time while landing. So he came up with that fashion trend for early aviators. In the span of his career, Arnold had seen aviation advance from primitive wood and fabric biplanes to muscular four-engine bombers capable of bridging oceans and turning entire nations into battlefields. And the rise of aviation had prompted Arnold to advocate for an independent air service separate from the Army, a view and a position that had become a crusade for him. Now, to make the case for the need for an independent air service, Arnold needed his Air Force to own an equal share of victory alongside the Army and the Navy in World War II. Now, he had hoped that the air war in Europe might accomplish that. But despite the best efforts of British and American bomber crews, the fight there had devolved into a slog, becoming the conflict's longest battle. More American airmen, in fact, would die in the heavens over Europe than the Marine Corps would lose in the entire war. And in the end, the infantry still had to storm the beaches and retake villages, towns, and cities. But Japan offered Arnold another chance, a blank canvas on which he could paint the awesome power of his Air Force. More importantly, if Arnold could not bring Japan to its knees by bombing, hundreds of thousands of American infantrymen would have no choice but to charge ashore and battle inside Japan's cities in what promised to be a bloody and horrific invasion. To accomplish these goals, Arnold had made one of the biggest gambles of the war. He'd spent $3.7 billion of taxpayer money to build the B-29 Superfortress. The B-29, in fact, proved the single most expensive weapon system of the entire war, costing more than the atomic bomb. That staggering price no doubt contributed to the three heart attacks he had in the two years leading up to the first attack on Japan. Developed by Boeing, the four-engine bomber proved an engineering marvel, assembled out of more than 55,000 parts. Construction of the nearly 4,000 B-29s Arnold ordered had proven an aeronautical gold rush, as the promise of steady jobs attracted tens of thousands of prospective laborers. To accommodate this labor force, the federal government went so far as to build an entire new city in Kansas called Plainview, just to house the army of workers, complete with schools, shopping malls, and even movie theaters. 
Overnight, Plainview mushroomed into one of the largest cities in Kansas, prompting residents there to dub it the Miracle City. Now, with a tail that rose as high as a three-story building, the Super Fortress boasted the largest propellers ever fitted on an airplane, along with a sprawling 141-foot wingspan. That's 20 feet longer than the Wright brothers' first flight. But the B-29, as Hansel soon discovered, proved a troublesome new airplane, often prone to engine fires. Mechanical problems on a 3,000-mile round-trip flight to Tokyo could doom a crew who looked down for hours on nothing more than cold, dark, forbidding waters. Quote, sometimes, one pilot later said, we wondered whether the battle was with the Japanese or the B-29. That propensity for for engine fires actually prompted them to position um, ground crew with fire extinguishers under each engine at startup on a mission. So you can imagine what a comforting sight that had to be for that air crew when they look down and see this. <laughs> now, as November 1944 rolled into December, Hansel continued to struggle. His early missions aimed to knock out Japan's aircraft industry. But post-strike photos revealed that his pilots were lucky to hit within 1,000 feet of the target, much less destroy it. Mission after mission proved a bust. And the fa failure of these strikes sparked tensions with Brigadier General Rosie O'Donnell, who was Hansel's lead wing commander. Now, O'Donnell had been a veteran of the, Pacific, of the uh, early fights in the Pacific and the Philippines. And he felt that Hansel should abandon daylight precision bombing and instead firebomb Japanese cities at night, the same approach that the British had taken in Europe. Unlike Hansel, who monitored the missions from the safety of Saipan, O'Donnell led his crews through black clouds of bursting flak, dodging enemy fighters. Problematic tactics, he knew, killed men. O'Donnell was reminded of that every time he sat down to write letters to the mothers and fathers, wives and siblings of the men killed in the heavens over Japan. He would write nearly 1,200 such letters that would go on to fill three binders that he kept for the rest of his life. To make matters worse for Hansel, the Japanese, outraged by these early attacks on their capital, retaliated, raiding Saipan day and night from Iwo Jima which is about 700 miles to the Northwest. Over the course of 13 raids, Japanese bombers and fighters destroyed or damaged 60 of Hansel's B-29s. These raids not only incinerated Hansel's precious few bombers, but also rattled his already exhausted air crews, who after flying grueling 15 hour missions returned to base only to have their sleep wrecked by midnight raids from the enemy. The air war against Japan, like his battle with Rosie O'Donnell, was shaping up as a pivotal test of Hansel's fundamental beliefs about bombardment, ideas that had come to define him. While firebombing cities horrified Hansel, other American leaders increasingly disagreed. It was hard not to watch German cities burn and wonder if such tactics might not work against Tokyo, Nagoya, and Osaka. America, in fact, had already begun planning for the possible adoption of such tactics, beginning with the development of a new incendiary bomb filled with a flammable gasoline jelly that today we know as napalm, which actually was first tested on the Harvard soccer field on Independence Day 1942. 
To test this new weapon, America went so far as to build a mock Japanese village in the deserts of Utah, one so authentic that craftsmen actually swapped out wooden pegs for nails. Engineers and then even went so far as to build a factory to produce the woven tatami mats, the iconic floor covering found in Japanese homes. To maximize that authenticity, workers included sliding screen doors, seating pillows, and even tables inside these homes. This is actually an image from one of these mock Japanese homes. Over the course of the summer of 1943, America incinerated and then rebuilt this village over and over and over again. At the same time, back in Washington, analysts had begun studying the devastating effects of the 1923 earthquake and fire that had destroyed much of Tokyo and Yokohama. That tragic natural disaster, which claimed more than 100,000 lives, had revealed the enemy's Achilles heel, dense wooden cities that were highly susceptible to fire. Back on Saipan, meanwhile, Hansel continued to struggle. By the end of 1944, despite having flown eight missions against Tokyo and Nagoya, Hansel had failed to destroy a single factory. Japan's war machine still hummed, and Hap Arnold, back in Washington, was out of patience. Arnold fired Hansel in January of 1945, replacing him with Major General Curtis LeMay. The 38-year-old was everything Haywood Hansel was not. LeMay lacked the social grace and polish of his poetic predecessor, a factor derived from his less-than-genteel upbringing. LeMay's physical resemblance to a bulldog mirrored his stern reputation, which coupled with his dislike for chit-chat or even talk in general, had earned him the nickname The Diplomat. <laughs> that was the kinder of his many nicknames. Those on the receiving end of his wrath called him Iron Ass. Now, unlike Hansel, who was raised in comfort, LeMay had suffered a hard scrabble childhood, one whose adversities had shaped the warrior he'd grown up to become. His father had been a dreamer and a ne'er-do-well who had moved the family cross-country from Ohio to Montana to California as he went from one mediocre manual labor job to the next. His mother had the highest education in the household and she'd made it only through the eighth grade. LeMay had learned through this experience at the early age that he could depend on no one but himself. So much so that he put himself through college at Ohio State by working all night in a steel mill. Now, soon after the outbreak of the war, LeMay was diagnosed with Bell's palsy which is a form of facial paralysis, which caused his right cheek to droop. To hide the residual effects of it, he often chewed on a cigar, which became part of that indelible image uh, that we think of when we think of LeMay today. Now, LeMay's difficult upbringing had made him a tireless worker, a leader who gave tremendously of himself to the war effort. He was lucky to lay down or stretch out for just a few nights each evening. The theme in all his letters, in fact, was his exhaustion. LeMay spent much of the war overseas, which came at great personal sacrifice to his family. Remember, he was only 38 at this time. So he had a wife and a daughter who was about four or five years old back home in Ohio. And during one very brief visit back to Ohio, his daughter insisted that he come outside and sit on the front porch swing with her. 
even though it was wintertime and freezing cold. And he sat out there for the better part of an hour before he went back inside. And his wife later confided in him that the reason his daughter Janie wanted to do that was because she wanted to prove to the other children on the block that she actually had a father. A gifted pilot and a navigator, LeMay had proven to be a daring commander in Europe. His background in engineering made him a natural problem solver, which he used uh, to pioneer longer bomb runs and developed new defensive formations, which helped B-17s maximize their defenses. Over time, LeMay won the admiration and respect, not only of his superiors, but also his men. Quote, if LeMay said two plus two equals five, one of his men once said, I'd believe him. Now, upon landing on Guam, LeMay came face to face with Hansel, whom he'd been ordered to replace. Now, Hansel and LeMay were friends. They knew each other. In fact, in Europe, Hansel had been LeMay's boss. In fact, when I was going through LeMay's personnel record, I found a commendation letter Hansel had written for him for his efforts in the European war. Hansel, in fact, was the one who cheerleaded and, and helped promote Le, get LeMay promoted to becoming a brigadier general. Now, when the two come face to face on Guam, LeMay outranks Hansel by a star. And Hansel, however, always that Southern gentleman, rather than blame LeMay for replacing him, he instead offers him a piece of advice. He says to LeMay, in his hopes that LeMay will continue his efforts at high altitude precision bombing, he says to LeMay, he says, remember, in the end, we will not be judged by whether we win this war. We, we will be judged by how we win this war. LeMay initially followed Hansel's advice, flying high altitude daylight precision raids. Now, he was a pragmatist, problem solver. So he had set out to solve the dilemma of how best to bomb Japan. He dropped his bombers from 30,000 feet down to 25,000 feet, hoping to get them in under those jet streams. He likewise established schools to improve pilot, bombardier, and navigator performance. Though Hansel had been reluctant to use radar, LeMay pressed his air crews to embrace this new technology. He also completely overhauled the maintenance program, helping to keep bombers in the skies longer. Despite all these efforts, however, LeMay, like Hansel, struggled with Japan's terrible cloud cover and ferocious jet streams, which combined to stymie bomber accuracy. The days soon turned to weeks as January 1945 rolled into February and then March. Yet American bombing results remained poor. That stress not only weighed on LeMay, but also on his air crews, who day after day after day had to return to the same target, battling enemy fighters and flak. Quote, each month here, one officer wrote to his wife, seemed like a year. Others couldn't help but stare down for hours at those dreaded dark waters on these long missions up to the main, Japanese mainland. Quote, old man ocean is a mean devil, pilot Wilford Lind wrote. The myriad number of things that can put you down in that ocean makes my knees weak. And I begin to wonder what I ever did to make God so mad at me. Back in Washington, Hap Arnold, worn out by the stresses of the war, suffered his fourth heart attack. All of this only added to the pressure that already weighed upon LeMay's shoulders. He needed only to look at what happened to Hansel to know the fate that awaited him if he failed to produce results. 
Quote, if you don't succeed, Arnold's chief of staff warned LeMay, you will be fired. LeMay could sense that the buzzards were circling. Something had to change and fast. With all this in mind, LeMay, as I noted earlier, was just 38 years old at the time, made what proved to be one of the most consequential decisions of the war. To successfully attack the enemy, he realized, required a radical rethinking of American strategy. One so unorthodox, one so perilous, and one so morally fraught that he refused to tell his superiors he would go it alone. LeMay decided to drop his bombers as low as 5,000 feet, bringing them in under the cloud cover and the roaring jet streams. The lower altitude he knew would expose them to Tokyo's anti-aircraft guns and fighters, turning the raid into a potential turkey shoot. To counter this, LeMay planned to push his attacks from day to night, providing his airmen the cover of darkness. He likewise ordered his bombers stripped of guns. Without weapons, there was no need to carry ammunition or even gunners, freeing up weight for more bombs. Lastly, he planned to send every plane in his arsenal. More than 300 would lift off from runways in the Mariana Islands and rendezvous in the skies over Tokyo in a mission appropriately dubbed Operation Meeting House. But tactics were not the only change. LeMay planned to swap demolition bombs for napalm-filled incendiaries, the same ones that had proven so successful burning down the mock Japanese village in the deserts of Utah. The mission's 12-square-mile target area was 87.4% residential. It boasted some of the greatest population density uh, and really in the world. The dark district you see there, Asakusa, had 135,000 people per square mile living there. The average for this, this is the target area. It looks like a jigsaw piece puzzle. The average population density in that area was 103,000 people per square mile. That meant that the mission's bullseye fell largely on the kitchens, on the living rooms, and on the bedrooms of Japan's workers. LeMay justified this decision because many of these homes doubled as small factories, a vital cottage industry that fed parts to Japan's ravenous war machine. 50%, in fact, of Tokyo's urban industrial output came from home workshops like this that produced things like the pin for grenades, the trigger for rifles, these small parts that were then absorbed in. LeMay, of course, knew that incendiaries did not discriminate. The fires his bombers set would burn everything and everyone in their path, from factory and armaments workers to artists, teachers, and housewives. Quote, we knew we were going to kill a lot of people and kids when we burned that town, he later wrote. It had to be done. To his aides, he was even more blunt. Quote, if we lose, LeMay warned them, we'll be tried as war criminals. Beyond the moral questions, the mission ran contrary to America's longstanding policy of high-altitude daylight precision bombing, the tactics that Haywood Hansel had helped develop during the interwar period and that America had, had adhered to in the air war over Germany. And now LeMay, without any approval from the president, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or even Hap Arnold, proposed to change everything. The mission, of course, wasn't without serious risks. LeMay's intelligence officers warned him that at such low altitudes, he could expect to lose 70% of his force. That translated into a potential loss of more than 200 planes 
not to mention the lives of 2,200 airmen. That wasn't lost on the crews. Quote, we were dumbfounded, recalled pilot Ben Robinson. The tactics to be used on this mission were tantamount to suicide. But LeMay doubted such predictions, and he believed it was a calculated risk worth taking. Crews, meanwhile, hustled to fuel the more than 300 bombers. While others hoisted incendiaries into the B-29's bellies. LeMay arrived at Guam's North Field shortly before sunset on March 9th, 1945. There he watched the first B-29 lift off at 5.36 p.m. Others followed from runways on Saipan and Tinian at 50-second intervals. Even at that rapid pace, it would still take several hours to launch the more than 300 bombers, which formed a loose single-file line that stretched more than several hundred miles along what the airmen called the Hirohito Highway. Throughout the bombers, tension soared as crews maintained radio silence. Quote, we had hours to think of the many things you do when you're under higher, higher stress, recall pilot John Cox. What was going to happen? Would we be able to do the job? Would we ever see home again? One hour soon turned to two, then three, and then four. Now, it was a cold March night in Tokyo. Snow, which had fallen a few days earlier, blanketed the narrow streets and few parks. Though the sky was clear that Friday, gusts of bitter wind blew out of the northwest, chilling those brave enough to venture outside. Seven minutes past midnight, the first bombers arrived over Tokyo, a skyline that would soon be lit by anti-aircraft fire searchlights. Their bomb bay doors sprang open, spewing loads of incendiaries. Fires ignited across the target area, ultimately melding with others to create an inferno. As these flames feasted on the city, the resulting hot air rushed skyward, creating thermal updrafts that battered the bombers while embers blew like seeds, helping to pollinate new fires. At the same time, that depletion of oxygen at the center of the fire created a vacuum, and nature hates a vacuum. So in its place, cold, oxygenated air began to rush into the center of those fires. And that rush of air actually reached as high as hurricane force speeds, strong enough to topple utility poles and even trees igniting what eventually became a firestorm, similar to what had devoured Dresden. Now the fires, actually some of the fires began just outside the target area in Jodo Ward. And the fires there soon merged to create a single blaze that spanned that entire district. The same thing occurred in Asakusa, while the flames in nearby in, in Fukagawa Ward collided with those in Hanjo Ward, creating literally a single blaze that covered this entire area. The winds blew that blaze leeward, creating what amounted to a tidal wave of fire three miles long that rolled across the capital, feeding on block after block of homes, businesses, and shops. Residents in Tokyo could look skyward to see this terrifying phenomenon bearing down on them. It seemed, recalled Seichi Tonazuki, like a wave crest approaching from beyond the ocean. Like many in the capital, 12-year-old Katsumoto Satome was in bed as the first bombers buzzed overhead. From a poor working-class family, the junior high school student had been conscripted into the war effort, 
hauling scrap metal at Kubota Ironworks on the Sumida River. He and his sister were asleep when his father burst into the room, shouting for them to wake up. The roar of the bombers greeted Katsumoto when he opened his eyes. And despite the blackout curtains, light flooded the windows, so bright, in fact, that he could read the characters on a wall calendar in his room. Now, as Katsumoto and his family fled, bombs continued to rain down. Across Tokyo, residents climbed into home bunkers, which were often little, I mean, barely primitive foxholes at that. Others sought out the few concrete structures Japan had, places like schools, government offices, train stations. Lastly, residents fled toward the city's few large parks, which served as open spaces in this otherwise congested capital. So what was it like for those residents trapped inside this firestorm? That was the question that I asked the survivors I interviewed in Tokyo when I was researching this book. There are, of course, no photos taken inside the Inferno. This is a painting, however, done by a survivor who was 13 years old. She has painted herself into the painting right here, kind of giving you a sense of kind of what it looks like from their perspective. Now, the glow of the fire literally turned night into day, illuminating the capital as if it were noontime. The fires produced a deafening roar, much like a freight train loud enough to drown out the cries of husbands separated from wives, children from their parents. And the air, as you can imagine, was scorching. It literally burned people's throats. It forced their eyes to walk. It was hard to even open your eyes. People struggled just to breathe. And as temperatures climbed, people's clothing and even hair began to spontaneously catch fire. Eyelashes melted off and asphalt roads liquefied turning into a sticky goo that clung to the bottoms of your shoes. Those residents who sought shelter in home bunkers, for the most part, all largely died. So too did many of the people caught out in the open residential areas amid the blizzard of sparks. Concrete buildings initially provided a safe haven until surrounded by flames. There, the temperature soared so hot that the glass in the windows and the doors began to melt and the sparks came in. And when the sparks got inside auditoriums and classrooms, again, people's clothing, hair, baggage ignited. And of course, as you can imagine at that point, hallways and stairwells functioned much like chimneys, funneling the superheated air, and toxic gases throughout these buildings. This nondescript photo actually documents one of the hottest confirmed places encountered during the firestorm. As you can see from the caption here, the steel rebar that was in these windows actually melted and so the concrete began to break down. Concrete does not melt until it reaches 2,800 degrees. Those residents who fled toward the city's few open parks and bridges suffered a similar fate. In an act of desperation, many actually jumped into the frigid waters of the Sumida River only to suffocate, drown, or die of carbon monoxide poisoning. To give you another sense of just what the temperatures were like inside this inferno, take a look at the image on the top left. It's actually kitchenware that has fused together with clay roof tiles where the roof collapsed into the kitchen of a home. The lower, the image in the lower right is also kitchenware. This time it's adjoined to corrugated metal roofing. Lastly, the fires proved hot enough to fuse metal coins together. For nearly three hours in the skies over Tokyo, bomber after bomber unloaded their payload. 
as the inferno grew, inbound pilots could see the glow of the dying city from 50 miles away, then 100, then 200. From the cockpit, the ground below appeared to move like lava, prompting many of the airmen to later compare it, the image to Dante's Inferno. Quote, it felt like you were staring into the mouth of hell, recalls 2nd Lieutenant David Braden. Smoke from the fires, meanwhile, wafted through the bombers, carrying with it that distinct aroma of barbecued flesh, dogs, horses, and even people. It was, as pilot Charles, Charles Phillips later noted, the smell of death. The sun rose over Tokyo on the morning of March 10th to reveal an apocalyptic wasteland. Smoldering ruins interrupted only by the occasional brick chimney of a torched bathhouse or factory. And you can see here those sort of lone chimneys kind of standing there. Fires had burned 15.8 square miles of Tokyo. The Inferno had claimed about 105,000 lives. That sum is more than four times as many as died in the firestorm of Dresden and more than those who initially died in the atomic attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Quote, there was still a light wind blowing, one reporter observed, and some of the bodies, reduced to ashes, were scattering like sand. The strike had wounded another 40,000 and left 1 million people homeless. Literally one out of every four buildings in Tokyo vanished. Quote, more persons lost their life, lives by fire at Tokyo in a six-hour period than at any other time in the history of man, the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey concluded. Now, 12-year-old Katsumoto Satome and his family had miraculously survived, escaping across the Sumida River on a railroad bridge near the target area's northern border. That next morning, the family, walking back to see if their home still survived, paused alongside the riverbanks where the bodies burned and drowned bobbed in the muddy waters. The youth watched as men using poles and ropes steered the bodies toward the bank, hoisting them up onto the river's edge and lining them up like fish in a market. Katsumoto, his father, admonished him, look at it. Don't forget it. This is what war looks like. Identification of so many dead, as you can imagine, was difficult. People pried open mouths to look for gold teeth, scanned fingers for rings, and others, meanwhile, learned that if on a charred body, if you lifted the arm, you might find a swash of unburned fabric in the armpit that might help you identify a loved one's clothing or kimono. Inside schools, the tally of the dead was often in the ashes and stuff done by counting air raid helmets. Bodies would eventually fill 67 temporary cemeteries in Tokyo, the grounds of parks, temples, and schools. Back in Washington, officials monitored the nation's editorial pages and radio broadcasts for evidence that the killing of civilians might, might spark outrage among the American public. Those fears, however, proved unfounded. The nation that had horrified the world with the attack on Pearl Harbor, followed by the murder of hundreds of thousands in places like Nanking, Manila, Hong Kong, and Singapore, garnered little support from Americans or elsewhere in the world. Quote, properly kindled Time Magazine declared, Japanese cities will burn like autumn leaves. The lack of any public backlash served as a green light for LeMay, who over the next five months unleashed a fury unrivaled in the history of warfare. City after city, town after town, 
soon fell victim to LeMay's bombers. His initial focus on urban industrial areas like Tokyo, where home factories contributed significantly to the war effort, faded as the attacks continued and his list of cities dwindled. In the latter raids, as the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey noted, the number one factor driving target selection was really a city's combustibility. LeMay's campaign culminated in the morning of August 6th with the atomic attack on Hiroshima, followed three days later by the destruction of Nagasaki. Only then, with dozens of its cities in ruins, did the Japanese government finally surrender. In the 159 days from his first strike on Tokyo until Emperor Hirohito announced Japan's intention to surrender, LeMay torched 66 Japanese cities, ultimately incinerating 178 square miles. Tokyo suffered the worst. Over the course of multiple attacks, American airmen burned 56 square miles of Tokyo. <clears throat> to put that in perspective, Manhattan Island is only 21 square miles. Tokyo, as one Army Air Force's report noted, got the super deluxe treatment. All told, America's bombing campaign against the Japanese homeland killed about 330,000 people, injured nearly a half million more, and left eight and a half million people homeless. It literally led to one of the greatest migrations out of urban areas seen during the 20th century. LeMay had, in the end, accomplished exactly what Hap Arnold had wanted. He had brought Japan's to its knees without the army ever having to put boots on the beaches of Honshu, saving hundreds of thousands of American lives. Even Haywood Hansel, who was crushed at losing his dream job, believed that LeMay in destroying Tokyo had made, quote, a shrewd and courageous decision. Quote, to my mind, Hansel later said, that decision was one of the most important decisions of the entire war. It was a personal decision, not a consensus, and he alone should bear the credit. Um, that concludes my uplifting um, talk on the destruction of Tokyo. Uh, you know, and, you know, when I was writing this presentation, I was trying to figure out like a final slide, and there's just there's really not a, a happy way to bring this one around. So, um, with that, I will um, entertain any questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Operation Starvation, for folks who aren't aware, was actually the aerial mining campaign that the B-29s took part in. And the B-29s were originally set up as an independent air force, essentially. And so they were a strategic bombing force. And the air force uh, senior leadership was really adamant that they not be diverted to other missions. Uh, because they didn't, they didn't want that capability of, of lost. Uh, but Operation Starvation was one that LeMay had agreed to, and it was highly successful. And it was an aerial mining campaign in which we dropped 12,000 mines all around Japanese waters, not just their home islands, but even off of Korea and, and uh, China. And this was actually done in conjunction with the submarine blockade, uh, which was a, a, you know, America, and by the way, if you're looking for a good book on the submarine war, uh, The War Below, it's a great book, just have to give that plug for there, um, was actually a blockade of the islands. And Japan was a materially bankrupt nation. 85% uh, of it is mountainous. They can't grow enough food. They have you know, very little industry. 
because of their mountains, much of their transportation networks all revolve around the waterways. And of course, America had realized that and put into place a highly effective submarine war against the Japanese. So much so that by the last year of the war, about the summer of 44, Japan's economy sort of has crossed that apex and is beginning what ultimately amounts to its sort of death spiral. They're not bringing in enough stuff to be able to, you know, rebuild more ships and planes. In fact, the kamikaze service is a direct result of the fact that they don't have enough fuel to train pilots. And so you add to that a highly successful mining campaign, it becomes this one-two punch. Um, and, you know, the, it just really came down, though, as, as far as how long America wanted to wait. And that's really what, it you know, did we want to wait, wait another year or two for Japan to, um, to surrender? Because the, the reality is their economy was already broken. But it's hard for, and I think the American calculation, or at least LeMay's calculation, was it's hard for it's hard for a Japanese government to visualize hunger and starvation of its people like you can burn cities, loaded bodies in rivers, and that and, and also the societal disruption of a mass migration of people into the countryside, which is what it did. It created a huge social burden. So um, Japan was already defeated before the B-29, first B-29 took off in November. Um, I think the view from LeMay and Arnold and this, this was like ripping off the Band-Aid. It's going to hurt. You got to do it up front. You're going to have to kill a lot of people. But in the end, you, you kill people up front, but you prevent dragging this thing out where you got to remember about 100,000 people are dying in Asia every month from the war in China. I mean, China loses 20 million. So it's like, do you drag it out or do you do it in one big fail swoop? And, and they took the approach of ripping the Band-Aid off. So, yes, ma'am. Well, and that, that's a great question. And that's, that is something. So when LeMay first flies this mission, they're in, in Washington, they're very concerned. Dresden's taken place just a few weeks before this. And so Henry Stimson, in fact, has gone on record just literally in late February saying, you know, we don't, we don't burn cities. We don't target civilians. And, and, and meanwhile, of course, LeMay is completely planning this operation and he hasn't told anybody about it. So, um, so there was a lot of sensitivity as to how the American public would react to that. And so if you look at the message traffic between LeMay and Washington, they're monitoring the media, the editorial pages, the radio broadcasts to see if there's going to be this huge pushback. And there's not. And that essentially serves as the green light for LeMay. In fact, um, Henry Stimson, who's the, the war secretary at that time, actually writes in his diary in, in May of 1945, he says, you know, I'm stunned that the American public hasn't, there's been no real outcry over this. I mean, that said, you see the occasional letter to the editor or whatnot, but in general, that Time Magazine quote, you know, properly kindled cities will burn, kind of reflected sort of that national mood at that point. And so there really wasn't that pushback. And of course, that then paves the way for the destruction of, you know, LeMay first moves through all of Japan's major cities. You know, there's Tokyo, there's Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe. Then he moves down to the secondary level cities. And then finally, by the end of the war, he's on the tertiary cities. I mean, cities of 35,000 population. And they're just, they're, there's so many, I mean, they're, they have so many bombers at this point. They're, they're sending them out against multiple cities at night. You know, instead of directing all their bombers at one, they take 500 bombers and spread them out over four cities. So it just goes on and on. Yes, sir. What was the danger to the flying bombers? <clears throat> Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, initially, it was there was a lot. Um, for this mission, they lost uh, 14 planes, so it was about a loss rate of a little under 5%. Um, much of Japan's fighter capability and anti-aircraft fire was 
all in Tokyo and Nagoya because as, as America initially started, those were the two cities we were going after because they had the highest level of um, aircraft uh, manufacturing. And that's what we were trying to initially knock out was knock out their ability to build more planes so that we can control the skies. And so as those missions are happening and Japan gets sees what we're doing, they move all their guns into those areas. And so they called that Flak Alley, those two areas. And so the pilots took heavy, heavy hits from uh, from fighters, from Flak and whatnot. For this mission, however, LeMay gambled knowing that we've been coming in for months during the day at high altitudes. If we come in at night at low altitudes, it's going to be like an aerial sucker punch. And, and he was right. Completely caught the Japanese off guard. And so what he did right after that is he hit over and over and over again. So within the span of about eight or nine days, he flew five missions against um, Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka, and then Nagoya again and burned 32 square miles of those cities before Japan could kind of figure out what was going on and adjust its defenses accordingly. They did. They had some, but they didn't have much night fighter capability. So, and and that was, of course, you know, LeMay knew that going in. And uh, but but no, they were really running it. So Japan, in fact, actually resorted to using kamikaze planes to try and ram American bombers in the skies overhead. Yeah. Yes, sir. Right behind. Thank you. What what was the expectation for how things would have went and casualties and whatnot had they actually had to invade Japan? Yeah, that's a great question because that's what Hap Arnold is really up against because in, in he he not only wants to prove that his air service helps win the war and because you have to so the army really can the army dominates the European war the navy very much dominates the Pacific war and Hap Arnold's trying to show that his air force sort of has a stake in all of this and so that is of course a big motivation but the reality too is that if they can't break Japan through bombing they will have to invade and and Marshall and a lot of the others in the defense department have infantry backgrounds and they very much victory comes only by boots on the ground and Arnold is kind of up against that and so he's really pushing hard against LeMay and Hansel to try and bring this around. The estimates are kind of, uh, they're, they're a moving target, but by July of 1945, I mean, one of the Defense Department estimates said that, you know, the United States could expect to have about 1.7 uh, million to 4 million casualties, and Japan would be looking at 5 to 10 million casualties. Uh, Japan had about 2 million troops in, uh, in the mainland at that point. They had since the beginning of January when they had decided that they were gonna have a defense of the homeland. They had begun training kids and grandparents with spears. Um, and you know, and America was looking at the ferocity of fights like on the Mariana Islands, Ontario, the Battle of Manila, which had just wrapped up before the firebombing is an incredibly gruesome urban fight in which 100,000 people are killed in 29 days. Again, really good book on that if you're interested called Rampage. Um, so. Uh, you know, they were looking at all that anecdotal evidence. So, but all that kind of factors into, into Hap Arnold and his sort of press to bring it in, bring it to an end by, by bombing. Yes, sir. Do you think that if they had not dropped the atomic bomb, Japan would have surrendered very shortly? Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's interesting. So LeMay, LeMay did not like the atomic bomb. And, uh, and so he, he felt like the, the hard work was done. And he recognized that this new technology was going to take the spotlight off of what he had done. And, uh, and he was right. And so uh, he had said, you know, look, by October, we're going to be done with 
all the targets. I mean, they were literally burning cities with 30, 35,000 population. Japan had no real industrial capability. They were like a boxer pinned up against the ropes, just taking punch after punch after punch. Uh, but what Japan needed was a sort of a face-saving way out of the war. And if you look at the emperor's speech on, Oct on August 15th, he completely lays Japan's decision to pull out of the war at the feet of the atomic bomb. You know, the Americans have this new technology for which, you know, wipe us completely off and therefore we surrender. Japan had already been defeated, long since been defeated. It was really, it was convincing them of that need to actually have unconditional surrender. And so the atomic bomb gives them a face-saving way out of the war. Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to offer a comment mm -hmm. that your delivery of this historic event for me is chilling and spellbinding. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm a big believer in storytelling. I just think it, you know, I I have two children, and the only way I can is I, I compare history to feeding vegetables to my kids. It's like if I put cheese on broccoli, they'll eat it, and I, and if I can tell history as a story, they'll listen. So you, know, so you can credit my children for that. So yes, sir. There's a gentleman right there in the. How much of the war of the war was still going on in China after all this, or what was going on in China with uh, with Japan? Yeah, a lot a lot of people were dying in China still. In fact, the majority of the hundred thousand people that were dying every month were dying in China. So, um, um, you know, the, the Japanese were still they were still there. They were still fighting. Of course, you know, Russia then comes into the war at the very end up in Manchuria as well. So, um, but but overall. Um, so much of what's happening to Japan at this point has just been a story of retraction and defeat as they've sort of pulled all the way back down uh, to their, you know, their empire once stretched across 20 million square miles and multiple time zones. And it's now come all the way back down to a handful of places. And so um, China, of course, is one of them. But at this point, really, the majority of the fight is is the air war against their homeland. Yes, ma'am. When you were interviewing Japanese mm -hmm. citizens, particularly those who actually survived these events, did they give you a sense of what they would like Americans to know about this? Um, yeah, thank you, Janet. Yeah. Not just war, but forgiveness. And yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I, so whenever there's an American historian, of course, wondering how I was going to be received. <laughs> In fact, actually, I... And great. I mean, it could just be the Japanese politeness, but everybody I, I, I interviewed, and I did extensive interviews with survivors, were, were lovely to deal with. And um, and we did lengthy interviews. And uh, I'll tell you a little side bit. Um, a great place to do interviews in Japan is if anybody's ever been to Japan or understands Japanese culture, they love karaoke, right? And all over Tokyo, there are these karaoke businesses. And these karaoke businesses have like these booths that you can go into, which is like a living room with sofas and tables and they're soundproof and people will bring you snacks and whatnot, but they also make great places to do interviews because you can sit in there for hours and be comfortable and have refreshments and do all that. And so, and record interviews and, and whatnot. So, um, but the people I dealt with, a lot of them 
one of the big lessons they said is, you know, the, the blame is not so much for the Americans. I think they understand why the war was where it was. There's a lot of blame against the Japanese government at that time for prolonging this war. Because at the end of the day, in the last, really in the last few weeks of the war, you've got Emperor Hirohito, who's obsessed with maintaining his rule. So much so that he requ he requests that the sacred jewels, mirror and sword all be brought to the Imperial Palace so that he can keep them under guard. He, you know, he's the only one that's got this awesome bunker that's underground you know meanwhile people are living in the japanese government's told them well you need to dig a shelter but they don't give them any money they don't give them any resources for how to do it so people build these foxholes where in the and when the words of one japanese person they roasted like potatoes because they just you know there were no real effort to build um uh, real bomb shelters that might have been helpful to the people there uh there's no effort really to bolster their fire department, which is just tragic. It's a, it's a comedic story. If you were to compare their fire department in 1945 to the American fire department, um, you know, they're not cutting adequate, um, um, fire breaks through cities. Uh, there's no effort to evacuate on a large scale, um, civilians. They, they do get some of the children between the ages of third through sixth grade out of the cities, but that's just a small drop in the bucket for all the people that, I mean, they just simply don't take seriously the need to prepare and protect their own people. And so a huge part of the blame for this, of course, I think falls on the leadership of Japan. And so a lot of the people, when I was interviewing them, they, they know all this now and they, they talk about that and they blame, look, it's, it's, it's Hirohito and a handful of his senior military advisors that are making this decision to draw out this war. And one of the reasons they're doing that is because they don't want to have unconditional surrender because they're afraid that unconditional surrender means the emperor goes away and that, you know, they're going to lose that. And the emperor doesn't want that to happen and nor do his senior advisors. So they have this idea that if we can just get this one last victory, we'll have a better position at the bargaining table. And so they just keep holding out and they keep holding out, but there is no victory to be had. You know, they have no Navy, they have their air force has been destroyed. They have no fuel, you know, there's, and so they just continue to absorb this punishment. And of course that punishment falls on the backs of their people. And so the blame, I think, in the eyes of a lot of the survivors, and at least this is what they told me, you know, maybe they did it so I wouldn't feel bad as an American, but they told me, you know, hey, we we understand the, the politics of, the, of that time period. So. Um, you know, and I haven't done as much research on that end, so I, I, I wouldn't feel qualified to really get into that as much, but um, um, so sorry <laughs> before I say something out of, out of line. Yeah. So. Yes, sir. Well, it's a really, it's a good question. And this is one of the things I find interesting about this story is that, is that it really, um, because in Europe, there was kind of this deep bench of senior air officers who were against firebombing, guys like Jimmy Doolittle and Ira Eaker. And so the British actually come to the Americans in Europe in late 44 and they say, hey, we've got this idea. We're just going to burn Berlin to the ground. And, and the Americans kind of push back on that and, and, and they don't want they don't really want to be involved in that. And because they also recognize that at the end of the war, it's going to, um, they don't want to get tarred with that brush like the British do. And so Ira Eaker is a very senior air officer says, look, we don't want to be convicted of throwing the strategic bomber at the man on the street. So they had a lot of guys over there to sort of debate this in the Pacific. It's just LeMay because what Arnold did is when he builds the, the B 29, he spends all this money. He said, and he's looking at the theater and he's got, MacArthur and Nimitz. And he's like, you know what? These are dominant personalities who, this is a strategic plane that can fight a war on its own. It's like a submarine. It should operate independently outside of connectivity to a fleet or a ground service. But if I give this to Nimitz or I give this to MacArthur, it's just going to become one more tool in their 
in their bag and it's not going to be used for what it is. It's going to be used to cover ground forces on invasions and fleet operations. And so he recognized that. So he goes to the joint chiefs of staff and he says, look, I've got a proposal. Instead of giving this bomber to either of these others, we're going to create a whole new air force. We're going to call it the 20th air force and I'm going to be in charge of it. And I am going to report directly to you guys as the joint chiefs of staff. So, I'll, and, 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 but I'm going to stay in Washington because this is where I, my job is. So I'm going to send my representative out there to fight under my name. And that ends up being Curtis LeMay. So LeMay is out there essentially running his own air force. And Arnold has this massive heart attack in January of 1945. And so he's convalescing down in, in, in Florida. You got to remember this is fourth heart attack in like three years. I mean, so, so LeMay's out there. He's 38 years old. He's under all this extraordinary pressure. And he doesn't want to tell anybody what he's doing. So in, in Arnold's place is a guy by the name of Larry Norstad, who LeMay doesn't like. He doesn't trust him. He's, he, he's a, a, a brigadier general. LeMay outranks him by a star. LeMay thinks that Norstad is gunning for his job. So he's real reluctant to clue him in on stuff. But he does say to LeMay, I mean, LeMay does say to Norstad, he goes, I've got a question for you. He goes, is Hap Arnold a gambling man? And Norstad goes, you know, Arnold would go for anything that'll bring an end to the war quickly. And LeMay takes that as his green light. And so what happens is, is this pressure's building on LeMay in January and February. And LeMay starts coming up with this idea about how he wants to fly this operation. He doesn't want to put this in writing, and he certainly doesn't want to send it over the communications network. So in about the middle of February, he sends a a, a message to Norstad, and he says, you know, I'm thinking about some things here, uh, some changes. Um, I know you're thinking about coming out like in April or whatever. If I were you, I would come out now. And so he sends that cryptic message off, and, you know, a couple of weeks later, he hadn't heard back, and he sends another message to Norstad, and he goes, you know, I reiterate, you should come now. So finally, Norstad gets on a plane on March 7th, two days before. And of course, getting from there all the way to the Mariana Islands is like two days in a propeller-driven plane. So he doesn't hasn't told Norstad any of this stuff. Norstad lands the morning of March 9th. The crews are out there fueling the bombers at this point. They're getting ready to brief the air crews. Norstad gets off the plane, and LeMay's like, by the way, I've got something I want to run by you. <laughs> and that same day, as Norstad's getting off the plane, LeMay sends his first message back to Washington. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, for tonight's mission, I imagine a radical departure of previous tactics. And at that point, the die has been cast. There's no stopping this. And actually, Norstad's totally on board. Norstad's been the one that's been pressuring Hansel to firebomb and all this. He's like, you know, he'd been going to the meetings in Washington where they were talking about how to firebomb him. He's like, hooray. He sends this message back to the public affairs guy in Washington. He says, get ready for tonight's mission. Like, you're going to drum up the press releases, you know. <laughs> it's coming. And so, LeMay just that's it. I mean, he makes this decision. That's what I'm saying. It is a, a staggering decision that's so consequential made by a guy on his own, 38 years old out there. I mean, it's just totally fascinating. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Right up front. Could you talk about your sources and how you know that he was alone in this decision? Yeah, no, I mean, LeMay, I mean, LeMay wrote up, he's got an extent, over 200 boxes of his files in the Library of Congress and whatnot. So and it's after the war, of course, he talked about it. So we know, I mean, we know now kind of his account of it. And so unfortunately, LeMay did, he wrote a book about it, he wrote two books about it, actually. 
his voluminous personal papers, his his uh, his oral histories, and of course also the oral histories of his senior as senior guys. And I mean, because when he when he decides he's going to do this, he has to get his air guys together, and they have to draft the plan and do all that. So they do bring in a tight circle there, and so it all. Uh, you know, it all comes together. And it's also the same group of guys that LeMay after the war takes with him when he starts up strategic air command and does all that. So he's got a pretty tight cadre of officers that he worked with. So, but yeah, that's kind of the post-war when everybody's like talking about what all they did. It's kind of where you get that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am in the back. with can you share any of their personal stories on how they actually survived at all like, yeah what did they have to do or what, what how did they make it through the firestorm yeah. yeah um really to survive this firestorm came down to to luck in a lot of ways uh you either were outside of where the main fires were or you had the right physiology and by that i mean like there's one guy for example who was in a a bathroom in a uh uh, in a school building. And so there were about 30 people inside there and they were dousing themselves with water from the toilet tanks. And as you know, the fires close in, the oxygen depletes, everybody passes out. And he's like the only guy that wakes up the next day. So, you know, he, whatever it was in his physiology, he survived. Uh, one woman I interviewed, actually, she, a lot of people sort of congregated in the middle of roads because buildings on both sides were burning. She was a little girl at the time. So her father sort of laid down on top of her to kind of like to cover her. And then what you saw a lot of times is that people Cl clustered together sort of safety in numbers. And so the next morning there was like a, a pile of a dozen or so bodies. And at the bottom of that pile was this little girl and her father. And they were the only two that survived. So they were like in a cocoon of people who, and the people around them bore the brunt of the fire. And so they survived. So, um, yeah, so that's, you know, kind of how I, it, it, fortunately you, it really came down to the luck or physiology. I mean, it really, as to what what determined who lived and who died. So, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think there's one more question. Or yeah. Or you want to grab me afterwards? That's easier. Yeah. 